We come now to the 36th chapter of Genesis. Now, this is a long chapter. In fact, it goes through the 37th chapter, verse 1. So I'm going to let you remain seated today since there's about 50 verses. But as I read these words, listen to them with deep reverence and give them the best attention you're capable of giving them. Genesis 36. For that, there's all kinds of names here. This is a genealogy of dozens of names. I'm going to pronounce them dogmatically. That means nothing. I'm going to do my best to try to pronounce them correctly. If you've got a better way, that's great. Let us give our best attention to the reading of the Word of God. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. That is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Bezaboth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Naboth, and Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basamath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jeush and Jalem and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Beta, Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Besamoth, and the sons of Eliphaz were Tema, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kedaz. And Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. And these are the sons of Ruel, Nahath and Zerah, Shamoth and Mizah, these were the sons of Esau's wife, Basamath. And these were the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau Jeush and Jalem and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, uh, are Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepha, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. And these are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel, 
in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. And these are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descending from Esau's wife, Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anath, and Dishon and Esser and Dihon. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Zir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. And these are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, and Ebel, Shepho, and Onem. And these are the sons of Zibion, Aah and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. And these are the children of Anah, Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Anah. And these are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan and Eshban and Ithran and Sharan. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Zeavan and Achan. These are the sons of Disham, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs descending from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Jobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anah, Chief Dishan, Chief Izar, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king raised reigned over the son of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bidad, who defeated Bidian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Abath. Then Hadad died, and Shamlah of Masrikah became king in his place. Then Shamlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth, on the Euphrates River, became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, became king in his place. Then Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mesahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau, according to their families and their localities, by their names. Chief Timma, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Oholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, 
Chief Teeman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possessions. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Why is that in the Bible? It is the Toledoth of Esau. Remember what a Toledoth is. The book of Genesis is divided into ten Toledoths. A Toledoth means the record of the outcome of so-and-so's life. And so the farther we get in the book of Genesis, the more the stage narrowed down. And we see these ten records of outcomes of people's lives getting us closer and closer to the first verse of Matthew in the New Testament. You remember how it reads? If it was in Hebrew, it would say the Toledoth of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it says that in English. This is the outcome of Jesus' life, who was the son of Abraham and the son of David. So all of these phases get us closer and closer to that great incarnation of Christ. So why, why Esau? Uh, this is uh, a short Toledoth. Some of the other Toledoths are 10, 12 chapters long. This one is 44 verses long. That's all he's worth talking about. You notice the title of my sermon? The Dynasty of the Damned. And what a great and famous and renowned dynasty Esau did have for generation after generation after generation. Now, remember who Esau was. Esau was Jacob's twin brother. God loved Jacob. God hated Esau. And uh, so we've seen all the various stories between those two men. Did you see a word, a name, that occurred six or eight times in this chapter, Edom. It would always say Esau, who is Edom, or Esau, the father of the Edomites. So God really wants us to know that Esau had two names, Esau and Edom, and that he was the father of a long dynasty of Edomites. Now, why does God want us to know that? Or you wouldn't have emphasized it so many times in this chapter. Because throughout the history of Israel, the Israelites and the Edomites were always at war. The Edomites were always harassing Israel at every phase of her history for thousands of years. Until the New Testament. And I've told you before who the great Edomite was in the New Testament, Herod. So God wants us to know 
that this is a dynasty of damned people that culminates in Herod, who massacred all the little babies and who sought to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate son of promise. So uh, what is this a picture of? This short, and it is, it is interesting that the, this Toledoth goes through chapter thir, uh, 37, verse 1. That's very important. The next Toledoth does not start till verse 2 of chapter 37, and that is the record of the outcome of Jacob's life. And it's very important to notice that this Toledoth of Esau did not end in chapter 36, but it ends with the first verse of chapter 37, and we're going to make a big deal of that after a while. Uh, what is this a picture of? This dynasty, because that's what it is, this dynasty of Esau is the picture of a man whom God hated. That's purpose. You want to know what somebody looks like that God hates? Read the Toledoth of Esau. You say, wait a minute. I thought people that God hated were murderers and poverty-stricken and ignorant and, and didn't have much. Sometimes they are. But sometimes... The people that God hates, he makes rich, and he gives much property to, and he gives a large family to, and much power over people. And that's what we see in Esau's life. God hated Esau, so he made him rich, gave him a big family, and gave him wide power. Now, what does a man look like that hates God? Because that's also the picture here. If a man hates God, he's going to marry evil people. Remember, over and over, we've learned that God did not want his people to marry non-Christians. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Who did Esau marry? He married all kinds of pagan women. He married the daughter of Ishmael, who was a rebel against God. He met a daughter of the Hittites, who were a very strong, idolatrous, pagan nation in upper central Turkey. He married a Canaanite woman. So he married people that hated God to match his hatred for God. He also, a person that hates God, doesn't want God in his life, doesn't want to be anywhere near him, doesn't want to be near Jesus, doesn't want to have any of the blessings of God. So it says that Esau packed up all his goods and all his family and moved away from Jacob and moved away from the land of Canaan. I don't want to live in the land of promise. I don't want to live under the blessing of God. I don't want to live 
near the grandfather of the Savior of the world. So here's a picture of a man who hated God and a man whom God hated. What a dynasty it was. All these chiefs, all these clans, all these tribes, all these sub-clans, all these kings. I mean, he had this well-organized dynasty and culture around him. Kings and chiefs and all the rest, while Jacob was still a nomad in the land of Canaan. Jacob didn't have any kings in his descendants yet. Of course, Jacob's family would eventually produce the greatest king that ever lived. But now Jacob was just a sojourner in the land of promise, the land that God promised him. Uh, Jacob and his daddy Isaac and his granddaddy Abraham were just wanderers. They were just strangers in a land that belonged to them by covenant because the Canaanites were still in the land. And the Canaanites still outnumbered the Israelites, and the Canaanites still dominated the land of Canaan. And so when you hear somebody say, we're just a pilgrim, we're just pilgrims on this earth, be careful how you say that. Because remember, this earth belongs to you if you're the seed of Abraham. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of promise, and all the promises of the covenant are made to you, including the one that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But Abraham is the heir of the world, and being his spiritual descendant, we're heirs of the world. So be very careful when you hear people sing songs like, I'm just a pilgrim here. I'm, what is the song? I'm not at home here. I'm just a wandering through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue as if there's nothing important in this life for us, that the only good thing is dying and going to heaven and getting out of this earth. That's a wicked way of, of talking about a planet that's ours by covenant promise. So the only sense in which you and I are pilgrims and strangers and sojourners in this culture is that we're living in this culture. We're not strangers to this planet, but we are strangers and sojourners in a covenant that hates our, in a, a culture that hates our God, that hates Christ, that hates anything connected with Him. We don't belong in this culture. We're not a part of it. So don't think that when we say things like that, we're saying that this earth is not for us. It's just going to be great when we die. We all go to heaven and we leave everything behind. That is a wicked way of thinking about this earth that's ours by covenant promise. So Abraham and Isaac were, and Jacob were strangers because the land that God gave them, that they owned, that they had the right to live in, and that someday their descendants would fill up at that time, it was dominated and controlled by those who hated God. And so Esau prospers, becomes filthy rich, owns herds of cattle, 
flocks of sheep. Kings come from him. Chiefs, clans, subclans, thousands upon thousands of people. Now, it wasn't because Esau was such a great guy. It was because of a prophecy that Isaac made to him when he kicked his Egyptian mother out of the family with Esau. Uh, no, no, not Egyptian mother. But when he expelled Esau and Ishmael, he promised them, I'll still take care of you. God says, I'll still take care of you, even though I don't want you to be a part of this family. And so everything that God said he would do back earlier in Genesis, he's done now in this 36th chapter. He's given Esau tremendous power over people. He's made kings come from him and chiefs, large clans and nations, and other famous nations and tribal groups joined in with him. You notice it says that when he moved to Seir outside of Canaan, uh, the Horites joined with him. And so part of this genealogy is a genealogy of the Horites. Other pagan God-hating tribes joined with Esau in his rebellion against God. Now, the question is this. Why did it happen that way? God loved Jacob. And he was a stranger in the very land he owned. God hated Esau. And he was a man of power and wealth. How in the world do you explain that? God loved Jacob. What Jacob had and what he built was nothing compared to what Esau had, what Esau built. All these kings among his children, there were kings among the descendants of Esau, as it says, before there was any king in Israel. So why is it that this secular God-hating family prospered more rapidly than Jacob and his family. At the conclusion of our sermon, we're going to see what Psalm 37 says about that. I want you to think about it. God loved Jacob, and he did not thrive anywhere near as rapidly as Esau and his uh, dynasty of the damned. Now, why does this Toledoth end with verse 1 of chapter 37? <laughs> Is that because somebody, some old monk, that was dividing the Bible into chapters and verses, got mixed up? No. This is in the original Hebrew. This is a part of the original Hebrews told it off. 
You read verse 30, chapter 37, verse 1. Uh, he'd been just talking about Esau and Esau's family and Esau's prosperity. And then he says in chapter 37, the only time he says anything like this in this total off. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Why, after bringing up all this 43 verses about Esau, does God end Esau's genealogy with one statement about Jacob? Jacob lived in the land of his father, which is in Canaan, the land of promise. So this Toledoth ends with the contrast between Jacob and Esau, which the Bible's always doing, setting Esau and Jacob over against each other because throughout history, they've been enemies. And to emphasize again that there must be a clean break, there must be an antithesis between the dynasty of the damned and the dynasty of the elect. Those two must be kept separate, whatever cost. Jacob must keep the way, uh, the difference clear. He's got to maintain the antithesis. Esau was glad to do it. I don't want to live in Canaan. I don't want to enjoy any of the blessings of Jehovah. I certainly don't want to live with Jacob. So he lives with pagans outside the promised land, outside the land where God lived. And Jacob lived in that land. And as long as Jacob was faithful to keep the difference clear between his family and Esau's, he would continue to be blessed by God in far greater ways than Esau could ever imagine. Now, why did God bless Esau first? Because throughout the book of Genesis, God puts the people that he loves in positions where he tests them. And one of the ways he tests them is by making them a promise and then waiting somewhat, sometime before he fulfilled the promise in their lives. He tested his people by causing those who weren't his people to prosper to see if his people would still trust him in spite of what they saw. That's hard to do. Probably wondered why you look around you you see people who hate God, perverts, God-haters all around, rich, prospering, powerful, big families, and you're struggling to pay your bills every month. I'll tell you what the average weak Christian does. When he sees the wicked prosper 
and he's struggling, it burns him up every time he sees that wicked man in comfort. In comfort. It just burns him in his heart. He can't stand to think, why are these people who hate God, why is God blessing them more than he's blessing me? Well, that's an ungodly attitude to have. But God puts us in positions like that to see if we'll still be faithful when it's hard to be faithful, that we'll still trust him when it's hard to trust him. You don't see the promises coming true as rapidly as we would like in our lives. But we see the promises come true in other people's lives who hate the living God. Now, we're not left to guess. There is a whole chapter in the book of Psalms. That tells us why that is. Why God causes the wicked to prosper. The Christians are not prospering. So I want you to turn with me to the 37th Psalm. We're going to read this whole Psalm. It's almost like an application of Psalm, of, of uh, Genesis 36. Now what is this uh, Psalm telling us? It's telling us why the wicked prosper when Christians aren't prospering. Christians are struggling to make it, and the non-Christians just floating on in ease. So look at every word in these 40 verses. Psalm 37. By the way, have you heard this psalm recently? Have you heard anybody read this psalm on the Internet? It has a long red beard. And that's a country boy. His country song is going viral on the internet. Rich men north of Richmond. He reads this song. We start singing. Do not fret because of evildoers. It's only a sign of unbelief. It's only a sign of self-centeredness. Do not fret because of evildoers. Esau's around us. Be not envious toward wrongdoers and be jealous when you see the evil people prosper. For they will wither quickly like the grass, fade like the green herb. You see the wicked with a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of publicity. It's all the happiness they're ever going to get. We'll soon die and go to hell. Esau had wealth, family, and power. What else do you have? Monotony. Pretty monotonous chapter, I thought. He had monotony. He had nothing else 
but those three things that unbelievers live for. Wealth, power, family. And he did not have God. And when God is absent from your life, all these other things mean nothing and do not satisfy the heart. So don't ever fret because of evil people making a lot of money and you're not. Because they're just going to wither away pretty soon like a grass. And I go to hell. There's a preacher down the road. A great big church. And he has a, uh, well, it's, no, it's another great preacher farther down the road. Uh, but he has a saying that he, he says all the time. Put a book on the subject. Uh, your best life is now. Uh, if your best life is now, <laughs> that means you're going to hell when you die. And uh, that's the way these people think. They don't worry about the future. I have wealth, family power. My best life is now. So they're fading. We're prospering. Verse 3. So what do we do in the meanwhile? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord. <clears throat> All Esau had was wealth, power, and, and uh, popularity. We have the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Believe that? You say, I just can't see it. There's a lot of things I desire that I don't have. Well, that means that verse is a lie then. Or it means that God will in due time give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He'll do it, and he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret. It leads only to evil doing, where evildoers will be cut off. And those who, but those who wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That's the way you can translate the word land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place. And he will not be there. 
but the humble inherit the land. You know how that's translated in the Sermon on the Mount? But the meek shall inherit the earth. And will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Trust God for it. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. The righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land. That's the third time he said this. And those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong. Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. So depart from evil. Do good, so you'll abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. 
Mark the blameless man. Behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. What do you have in this chapter? Picture of a man whom God loves. What did you have in, in Genesis 36? The picture of a man whom God hates. What's the difference between these two men? Externally, it looks like they're pretty much the same, except one of the bad guys prospering more than the good guy. But what's the basic difference between them? The man whom God hates hates God. Man whom God loves, loves God. Nothing to worry about. See, this is the message of all of Scripture. The mystery, write this down somewhere. The mystery and reality of sovereign grace is that God causes those whom he hates sometimes to prosper in his life. And God causes those whom he loves sometimes to struggle. But it was Esau. And Jacob later became one of the great men in history. The ancestor of the Savior of the world. So don't try to understand life by what you see. Seek to understand life in terms of the promises of God. Believe what Psalm 37 says. You don't have every reason at all to be jealous of the wicked when they make more money than you are and when they're more comfortable than you are and when they're healthier than you are. You have no reason to be just, to be uh, fret over them. They, like grass, will fade away. The land. And live on it forever. Lord, we thank you for telling us about Esau. Oh, we're even more thankful you told us about Psalm 37. Lord, feed our faith. Help us to trust you with our lives and that you're going to be faithful to every promise you make no matter what we see, no matter what the wicked do. Steps of a man that loves you are established by you. 
and righteous people will never be forsaken. So, Lord, help us not to be jealous or envious. Help us to depart from evil, do good. And we know we will inherit the land in this life and in the life to come. And we are thankful for this promise, Lord, that we often overlook. We will see with our eyes destruction of evil men. They look so powerful. But we will see violent, wicked men who spread themselves like luxuriant trees in their native soil to pass away and to be no more. When we see these people that are trying to destroy America, Lord, you know you're testing our faith. We're still going to believe in you and trust you and, and honor our heritage when it's hard to do so. Are we going to be more concerned with our own ease and affluence? Thank you for the Toledoth of Esau. The mystery and the reality of sovereign grace. The evil perish because you hate them. The righteous thrive because you love them. In that great thought, our rest. For his sake, amen.